We are here this morning to exalt the one we just sang about, to rejoice over his work together. And there's nothing better for us to sing about than Jesus. There's nothing better for us to study about than Jesus' works. There's no person that is better for us to meditate on than Christ himself. And I will admit to you this morning before I start, I'm going to ask for your prayer in this because... um, as I, as I come to, to these gospel narratives, they just intimidate the socks off of me because of the subject. I just don't want to misrepresent Jesus. And um, whatever I mess up today, just overlook that, but look to Christ and the reality of what we see just in the reading of the text this morning. He is worthy of our attention, even if the message isn't all that great, Okay. His message is always pure and good for us to hear, so we will submit ourselves to that this morning. If you would, pray with me as I prepare to lead you in that. Heavenly Father, we we thank you for, for sending forth your Son to bring us what we don't deserve at the expense of his own sacrifice. We thank you, God, for not giving us what we do deserve, but instead, again, You gave us Jesus, the means of our salvation. And it's through Christ that we are called to that great salvation that you have provided for us through his sacrifice. And Jesus, we know that you've accomplished this for the Father's praise. And we thank you for your willingness to come to earth to save wretches like us. Holy Spirit, we ask you today to magnify our Savior and our Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us in our weakness. Help me as I preach. Lord, I, I just, I feel my weakness. I felt my weakness yesterday in preparation, and I feel it even more so today. But Lord, in my weakness, I know that your grace is made strong. So work in spite of me and above and beyond what I can do here this morning for your praise and for the good of your people. I pray in accord with Christ and his name. Amen. All right, so please open God's word with me to Mark chapter 2. And we'll begin in verse 13 in just a moment. Throughout Mark up to this point, and I think continuing on throughout the rest of the the gospel, we will see and hear many wonderful things about our Savior. Up to this point, and here in this text we'll look at this morning in particular, in 13 to 15, we hear about the merciful and powerful call of, of our Master and Savior, Jesus Christ, the call to salvation. Over and over again in the Gospel of Mark, we, we see this up to this point. We, we see and we hear the good news about how Jesus, the Lord of glory, left that position and came to the earth humbly. But he came for a purpose. He came on a mission. He came mercifully in that humility and he came powerfully in his deity to do something to accomplish a mission that mission was to save those who cannot save themselves and even so far in mark up to chapter 2 verse 13 we've seen him doing that we've seen him saving people who can't save themselves we've seen him save people like the defiled leper we've seen him save the lame beggar. 
And here in our text this morning, we're even going to see him save the vilest of sinners, the rejected tax collector. Look with me at verse 13. Let me read this to you this morning. When he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them, and as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. It's a simple narrative. It's a simple text to look at this morning, but it is so rich and so powerful. And it's a great reminder, I think, for me today, and I hope for you, about how God calls every sinner he saves to salvation. What we see here, I'm going to give you two points that I, I've gleaned from the text, okay? What we see here, though, is, is I think specifically a reminder of when God calls any sinner to salvation, number one, that call begins begins with a merciful call from our master. You'll see that in verses 13 to 14a. And when God calls any sinner to salvation, it not only begins with a merciful and personal call from our master, but that call also secondly produces an evidential reaction to our savior. So it begins with a merciful call from our master and it produces an evidential reaction to our Savior. Would you all agree? Amen. In these verses that we read, these simple verses, these three simple verses, we hear the hope of all sinners. Because Mark is telling us, look at Jesus. He goes out of his way to call the vilest of sinners to salvation. And you want to know if he's able to do that? Then look at the testimony of this tax collector. Look at Levi's response to this call to salvation. It testifies to the reality of Christ's authority and his mercy. It's a truly amazing text. But in order for us to really get a lot out of it, we need to know a little bit of a history about it, okay? It's an amazing text, and this is why it's so amazing. You have to understand in this narrative that Jesus is speaking to the filthiest of the filthy, the vilest man ever in that society. I don't know that there was anyone under him. He was even considered to be worse than a Gentile. That is, a tax collector was considered worse than a Gentile. Everyone hated men like Levi because... Of their occupation. They were tax gatherers. We don't like tax gatherers a whole lot today either, do we? I'm not crazy about the IRS. But there's a huge difference between what the IRS does and what tax collectors in Jesus' day did. Let me give you some information, just some background, so you'll understand what tax collectors were like in Christ's day. Jewish tax collectors 
were the despised ones among the people of Israel. Everyone in Israel avoided these men because, number one, they were extorting money from their own people. Number two, they were consorting with Israel's avowed enemy, Rome. This made them a despised group of people in Jerusalem. The Roman government was occupying Jerusalem, and tax collectors were in the business of serving through them and with them so they could fill their own pockets at the expense of their own Jewish brothers and sisters. And the way that worked, the way that worked is that basically the Romans who were occupying would collect the taxes through a system called tax farming. Tax farming. It was like buying a fast food franchisement, basically. Rome would assess a district, and then he would, they would fix a tax rate on that district and then sell the right to collect taxes to the highest bidder. Then the buyer, the tax collector, would basically pay the assessed figure at the end of the year, but between the time of the purchase and the end of the year, they could actually gather up as much money as they wanted above the assessed rate, and keep that money for themselves. So basically this system that was established by Rome allowed for these Jewish tax collectors to build up their own greedy fortune. And they would base that on the backs of their own brethren. The system was built on greed and deception. You have to understand that. That's why Levi is such an unlikely recipient of the call to salvation. I mean, no one thought that a tax collector could be saved. No one wanted them to be saved, frankly. They would rather them perish in their sins because they were so greedy and so deceptive. The tax gatherers could basically not only heap on just outrageous rates, they could actually add fraudulent rates to get more money for themselves. So what they might do is they might basically be called by Rome to tax you for your cart. That's legit. But then they might decide, okay, I can get more out of this guy by taxing him for each wheel on the cart and for the donkey that pulls the cart and for the reins that he holds as he leaves the cart. They could do that and no one could dispute their claims because they had the power of Rome behind them. Basically, these men had no scruples at all. They were ruthless. They were basically extortionists and traitors to Israel. That's why they were so despised at that time. The people of Israel not only hated their business practice, but they actually hated the person themselves because they were living in this opulent life at the expense of their own brothers and sisters. And they hated what they did with their lives as well. They gave their lives to Rome, to Gentiles, to be servants of Gentile Romans. They lived like Gentiles as a result. And they even used Gentile thugs to shake down those who couldn't pay their taxes. So in the eyes of the Jews, tax collectors were again, as I said, considered to be worse than the people they even worked for. Worse than the Gentiles. And consequently, the tax collectors were then excommunicated 
from the synagogues and rejected by the people. And this is very important. You have to understand this. In, in Christ's day, as we read this narrative, in Christ's day at this time, these tax collectors were unwanted, unloved, unholy, despised by the people around them, the Hebrew people in their community. And that's what makes this narrative so amazing. It makes it so amazing when you look at this and see Jesus' merciful choice of Levi to call him to salvation. That's absolutely astounding. But I don't think it's any more astounding than Jesus' merciful choice of you or I this morning. If you know and have seen the depth of your sins, it should amaze you. And what I'm hoping this morning is as we read through this and I talk about this, you you begin to actually see how you should respond to the call of salvation, even now as a Christian. Levi's conversion should help us stir up new affections for Christ if we think about this carefully. Levi's conversion should stir up thankfulness in our hearts today because his conversion reminds us of how Jesus mercifully and powerfully called us to salvation, even though we were truly as spiritually vile as Levi in God's sight. Yet Jesus went out of his way to seek and to save wretches like us. So, so pray that as we go through this text, you will meditate upon that. He sought you when no one else wanted you. He sought you and gave you what you didn't deserve. And he didn't give you what you did deserve. He sought you in mercy and he bestowed grace upon grace now on your life as he has called you to be his disciple. Don't you just love knowing that the man we're reading about is also a man that God would use to write one of the Gospels? Levi is Matthew. Levi is Matthew. Just look what happens when Christ exercises his sovereign authority and his personal mercy in calling the worst of the worst to salvation. He makes them instruments of his grace. He can do that with us as well, and he will. Let's look at 13 and 14 here to see the first point. In this, these two verses, I'd say 14a, we're reminded that the call to salvation begins with a merciful call from our master himself. It's a personal and merciful call from our master. It says this in verse 13, just to kind of get us an introduction from the narrative of the man who was lame. It says, he went out again beside the sea. So he went out from this time and this place where he was with the man who was lame, and he had left that ministry laboring there all that time teaching and then healing that man, forgiving that man of his sins. And he went out again by beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. All right, so I know my point is the call to salvation begins with a merciful call, but I want you to notice something in verse 13. It begins with a merciful God. Just think about this practically for a second. Here, here we have Jesus who's been laboring. And when Jesus preached, 
He preached with his whole being. He gave it all that he had to glorify God the Father. And listen, preaching exhausts you. And here he is after preaching and then healing and dealing with these Pharisees and Sadducees. And he needs a break. So he goes and takes a walk. I mean, this is normal. This is human of him. He needed physical rest. So he begins to to take a, a break from his labors and he goes out and walks beside the sea, enjoying the creation that he has made. But then right behind him, what's happening? I mean, he's like three steps on the beach. And here they are, that needy crowd following behind him. I know what I would have done. I'm going in the water. I mean, I'll get away from them. You know, I mean, I'm worn out. I'm tired. I need a rest. But what does he do? This merciful God who calls us personally to salvation, this merciful God stops in his tracks. Even here, displaying his mercy to the needy. He stops and considers even their need of spiritual rest above his need of physical rest. I mean, isn't isn't that amazing? Isn't that mercy astounding? I mean, this is personal. He is exercising supreme and sovereign authority in the next few verses and calling a man from death unto life. But look, he is a man. He is in the flesh. He's fully God and fully man. And he is exercising his mercy and his divine authority here and even stopping and teaching these people. This mercy is amazing when we see this. But it's not nearly as amazing as what we see in verse 14a. Because what we see in verse 13 is just a shadow of the mercy that we will see in 14a. In 14a, Jesus personally shows us the greatness of his mercy. Christ's personal mercy is, in this verse is elevated to the highest degree as he doesn't simply stop and teach some people. He stops and converts a sinner. He stops and speaks to reject, to the vilest of the vile. He goes out of his way from teaching, from seeking physical rest, to mercifully calling a sinner like Levi, to salvation. This is the highest degree of his mercy that we can see here. He does not give Levi what Levi deserved. He gave him mercy. Levi deserved damnation. Separation not only from Israel, but from God eternal. But he gets something very surprising. And what you'll notice is Levi is passive in all this. Levi is not making a decision for Jesus. Levi is not walking an aisle to come to Jesus. Levi is not raising a hand to be converted. This is the Savior seeking the sinner that we're seeing here. And this is the way it is in the true call to salvation for any of us. He sought us when we were dead in our sins and trespasses. When we couldn't respond to him. He came to us. That's what's happening in this passage. This is a testimony of his sovereign grace and his authoritative mercy here. Look at verse 14a. It says, as, and as he passed by, as he's just strolling along, teaching these people, he saw Levi. And you know it's personal when 
he actually says, this, this is Levi, the son of Alphaeus. He knew him. Listen, if, he, if he's called you to salvation, he's known you from before the foundation of the world. He knew who his elect would be in Israel at that time. He knew Levi. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Follow me. It's not like a simple statement. There's a lot of weight involved in this command. It's not a suggestion. It's not an invitation. It's a command. It's a divine imperative from God the Son himself. But what's astounding about it is how merciful it is to me. Just think about it for a second. Again, no one in Israel would approach this tax collector to show him mercy. They all wanted vengeance. No one would do that. But here we see Jesus doing this. Stepping out of his way to mercifully seek and save what looked like the unsavable. That's a good reminder to me of what he did in my call to salvation. In his eyes, I was just as defiled or worse than this tax collector. Yet he stepped out of the way to seek and to save me. I just hope this text helps us rejoice in that, reflect on that this morning. What we're seeing here is God, a very God, personally coming after his lost child. This is amazing. He leaves heaven's glory, comes to earth in humility, walks in obedience, dies the death that we deserve, rises in victory, promises to come and gather us again. And then he tells us his spirit will come and empower us while we live. And this same God who's doing all of that is also the great shepherd of his lost sheep. You ever thought about this? He calls them lost. He called us lost. You can't lose something that you didn't first own. They're his people. And he came after them personally, we see here. He came after us personally as well when he came to the cross to take our place. But he comes personally to save this lost child and and bring him, call him from death unto life and give him what his money and his fortune could never buy. He gave him the riches of his grace and the forgiveness of God himself. And Jesus does all this by his sovereign authority and through, don't miss it, his personal mercy. I'm glad he he still does that today. Christ still, understand this, Christ still personally calls sinners. Now, not verbally. You don't hear a voice. You don't see an apparition. He calls you through his ordained means of grace. But he does personally call all those that he saves. He personally calls sinners now through the hearing of his merciful voice in the gospel, in the scriptures. Because when God's word is proclaimed, all of God's lost sheep will hear that voice effectually and go from death unto life by God's mercy. Look at John 10, 27 real quickly. 
We see this explained by Jesus himself. When his word is proclaimed, his sheep will hear his voice and it will be an effectual call to salvation. It will not go out void. It will accomplish his intended purposes. Look what it says in 1027. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and what effectually they follow me. He doesn't say sheep will hear my voice and some will follow me. He says, no, mine, those who are mine from before the foundation of the world, who are called in time by my ordained means through my accomplishments, they will hear my voice and they will follow me. That's what's happening in the conversion of Levi. Levi is one of those lost sheep. And it's evident that he's a lost sheep who has been saved by Christ's call to salvation here because he's following Jesus immediately. He does that because this call that we're talking about here in this narrative, the call from Jesus' sovereign authority through his personal mercy, this call is not, again, an invitation. It is a divine summons from the king, the master himself, who is calling those who could not come on their own to him. He is saying, come to me. And his, in his call, he's giving power. He's giving willingness to come. See, the thing about the regenerated heart is, it comes willingly to Jesus. Not grudgingly to Jesus. But it starts with the regenerated heart. See, regeneration precedes faith and obedience. He calls into life a new heart. And in response, at the revelation of his grace, we come, we follow him. That's what's happening with Levi. Levi's response testifies to that in verse 14. His his testimony is that he came willingly to Jesus, immediately to Jesus. So it testifies to the greatness of this call to salvation. Levi could not and would not have came on his own to Christ because he had one major problem that all of us had before Christ gave us life. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. But when the master, the creator of life, calls mercifully to us, he gives life to the dead. Look at Ephesians 2, verse 1. I know you guys know this, but let's be freshly amazed by his, his mercy and His grace that we see toward those who were dead and wicked and unable to come to Him and deserving of His wrath. And look what He did. He called us when we were dead and He called us effectually through the power that resides in him, his authority. And he gave us life. Look what it says, 2.1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. That means dwelt, abided, right? Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Look how dead we were to God. Look how rebellious we were to God. How obstinate we were to God. We were followers of Satan, followers of our flesh, lusting after our own desires, rejecting God's goodness. By, by nature, we were children of wrath. And verse 4 says, But God, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, notice, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He called in mercy and raised us in victory. He called the dead and gave life to the dead because of His sovereign authority and, again, His great, great personal mercy because He is rich in mercy. That word rich there in verse 4 means abounding in compassion. He is abounding in compassion toward His lost children. Church, don't, don't fail to be amazed by this this morning. Don't fail to be freshly amazed by Levi's conversion in 2.14 of Mark. Here's why you should be freshly amazed. You guys ever want to see a miracle? Everybody wants to see a miracle, right? You're seeing one right here. This is a more reliable testimony to a miracle than any other that you'll hear from man. We are witnessing a miracle that should cause us here to remember and to rejoice over the miracle of our own new birth. When we see this text, see the call to salvation is certainly a merciful call from our Master, but it's also one that should produce an evidential reaction to our Savior. When we think about this, when we see it happening to others, this should cause us to be excited. When someone is saved, it is a miracle. It is a miracle of God's grace. We're reminded of that here in 2.14b and 15. We're reminded that secondly, the call to salvation produces an evidential reaction to our Savior. Levi's call to salvation shows us that when Christ mercifully calls a sinner to salvation, it is both an authoritative call and an effectual calling. What do I mean by that? It's a calling that produces something. It produces a reaction in the one who is called. We see the evidence of that in his immediate response to Jesus. Look at 14b. After Jesus says to him, follow me, what happens? He rose and followed him. This has huge implications in it. Understand something. The authoritative call of the sovereign master of the world produces what he intends in those he calls. This authoritative call of our master produces evidential obedience in the sinner. Evidential immediate reaction to the Savior. Just look, look at what he does. It seems so simple. He gets up. And follows him. You need to understand something about this. This is a miracle. This is weighty. He owns the turf 
that his tax booth is sitting on. He relies on this spot. He relies on his presence being there to get his livelihood. And he gets up. And he follows Christ. Why is that significant? Well, up to this point, he had a different master. And it was his greedy heart. He loved money and what it could buy him. And when he gets up, what he's doing is he's turning from his master to follow the Savior. Church, understand something. When you read texts like this and you go, well, I don't see Jesus calling for repentance and, and obedience in one sense. He's not saying, you know, do certain things. Here's an outline of things to do. No, he simply says, follow me. In that response that we see in the sinner, we see the power of the Savior. We see repentance wrought in his heart through his actions as he follows, not just one time, but for the rest of his life. You see, the call to be a disciple, understood at least by the people there in Israel at this time, was a call for habitual continuation. You know what that means? Lifelong service to the teacher Lifelong following of the master. Luke actually helps us understand that a little bit better. Look with me at Luke 5, Luke 5.27. He emphasizes what Levi did in, it really in a more clear way and how radical it was. When you go to Luke 5.27, you'll see that. And then to verse 28, he says, After this... He went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, Levi left everything to follow Christ's command. His mastery over his life because he had saved him. See, the salvation experience was happening behind the scenes. Like I said, he wasn't walking an aisle making a decision. It was happening internally. Through this calling, this effectual calling of God in the flesh coming to him personally. We see the evidence of it in his reaction. He's turning from trusting in money to trusting in Jesus. Greed was no longer his master. Jesus was. He leaves everything to follow him. Levi's obedience here signified faith in Christ and repentance of his past life. That's what we're seeing in this immediate response and reaction to Christ's call to salvation. This is a divine act here, folks. The act of repentance and faith is a divine action. Because neither faith nor repentance are our human work. Both are granted to us by God's grace alone. You may think you repent on your own, but actually it's empowered by God himself. You may have thought when you came to faith in Christ, it's because you mustered up this ability to trust in Jesus. No, it was because God gave you trust in Jesus as a gift that came with your new heart. Look at Ephesians 2.8. We almost got to that. Ephesians 2.8 tells us, That this faith that we have is a grace gift. 
an unmerited favor from God himself to the dead sinner in need of salvation. Because it says here, for by grace, in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. We didn't do it. We don't get to boast in it. But we get to exalt Christ because of it. That's the point. Our, our faith comes in our life because of God's grace. And our repentance of our sins, leaving behind our previous life to follow Christ, that's also in Scripture, considered to be a gift from God, the one that only He could provide. Look with me at Acts 11. Acts 11. A true hatred of our sin, a true despising of our wretchedness, our practice, and a desire to turn away from that, that is something that God has to give us through a new heart. And that's what we see happening here in Acts 11. Verse 15 says, As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us Jews, at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave, there's the word, circle it. We'll see it again. God gave the same gift to them that as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? And when they, when they heard this, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted, gave, repentance that leads to life. We see the same thing happening in Mark through the actions of Levi. Levi testifies to this gift of repentance and this gift of faith when he responds to Christ's command to follow him. What we're witnessing here is, is a miracle, again, of God's sovereign grace coming to a, a wretched, vile sinner like us. But it changed his heart, just like it did yours. When that grace came, it transformed you. Who doesn't want to be a follower of Jesus this morning? We all do. Now, we all don't do it perfectly, but it is the longing of our hearts internally, is it not? And that longing began when he called you to salvation. And that longing was there when Jesus commanded him to come and follow him. It's interesting when you, when you look at this verse 14b. A and B, when he talks about following Christ or being commanded by Christ to follow him, we know that it is the power of God's grace that is at work changing his heart to accomplish this because the Greek verb tense here for follow him is a present imperative. Okay, it's a big way of saying basically this is a command that called for Immediate and lifelong, continuous service. All right, that means he was going to have to. He was going to definitely have to leave everything behind to follow Jesus, not just one time, but continually for the rest of his life, and even throughout eternity. And, and don't we we see that Levi's testimony bore out that God accomplished that in his life? 
Levi, who is later known as Matthew, testifies to the fact that God did this by his grace through a changed heart, through a transformed heart. When Christ came to him personally, he gave it to him personally out of mercy. It had to be that because Levi's sitting in his established place of business, pursuing his dream. And along comes Jesus saying, follow me. And then suddenly, Levi actually throws everything to the wind and goes after Christ and never looks back. I hope that's my testimony. I feel at times it's not. But I pray as I reflect on this work of grace in Levi, it will be once again my testimony as I look to Christ and pursue him for the rest of my life without looking back. The kind of trust and obedience that we see here in in Levi, again, is a miracle of grace. And it was given to him, that gift of grace, that gift and merited favor from God was given to him through a new heart. He'd been regenerated. Regeneration is a miracle. That heart of flesh that loves the things of God and hates the things that you used to love so much, your sin, that heart can only be created by God, and it's for God's glory that he does this. Look with me, Ezekiel 11. Ezekiel eleven seventeen. If you don't want to go there, just listen. I'll read it to you. Ezekiel eleven seventeen to 20. He writes, Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the people peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it its detestable things and all its abominations. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit. I will put within them, I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. That, here's the purpose, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. Levi's life testified to this. God gave him the the new heart in verse 19. The evidence was his immediate response, his evident reaction to the Savior in verse 20. He got up and he, he walks in his statutes. He follows his rules. He seeks to obey Christ. And the testimony of his life was he belonged to God. And he was used for God's praise. Saints, I want you to know something this morning, remind you of something this morning. When we see verses like verse 20, he's he's walking in his statues, keeping his rules, obeying his commands. And we see Levi following after Christ. We know it's an obedience. This is not begged obedience. This is not begrudged obedience. Understand this. The call to salvation and obedience is empowered by the freedom of regeneration. You have a new heart. A heart of flesh, meaning sensitive to God's will, longing for God's glory. The call to salvation is empowered by freedom. Through this regenerated heart. Levi was not. Go back to Levi. Go back to Levi in Mark 2.14. Levi was, was not. Certainly not being forced. 
to get up against his will when he followed Jesus. Not at all. He came willingly. He left behind his previous life willingly. Because he now saw his greediness and his corruption the way God saw it. Because he had new eyes. He had a new heart. He now saw how wicked he was, not in the eyes of Israel, but in the eyes of God himself. And he he had nothing to do but to look to Christ and cling to his grace and his mercy that had been extended through this call. And he did all that because he had been given a regenerated heart. Listen, when God regenerates the heart, with that new heart comes new desires, new affections. You now desire the things that God desires because He created the new heart to bring Him glory and praise. So, as I say that, I want to ask you to do something this morning. Examine your heart. Does your heart, your regenerated heart, testify to His desires through your actions? Is that the testimony of your heart today? Was it your testimony at one time, but now it's just a distant memory? Possibly. Either way, we need to do what Levi does. We need to listen to the voice of Christ. Listen to his merciful call to sinners and saints alike to turn back to our Master and our Savior and behold his authority and his mercy and then go in grace willingly because of what he's done to us. That's what Levi does. What Levi did was empowered by God through Christ's merciful call. Levi's immediate obedience evidenced that. It evidenced the power of God's grace. Look at verse 15. In verse 15, we see that evidenced in an obvious and joyful way. Look at verse 15. And as he reconciled at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him now think about this for a second remember that levi has just left his livelihood behind right it means he's not getting a paycheck anymore no more income and what's he do something i think highly illogical right it doesn't seem logical that he would Respond to losing his livelihood with this joyful desire to throw a party for a bunch of his friends. It doesn't seem logical he would be joyful about losing his job, much less throwing this party for many. But what I think is happening here is we're seeing the effectual evidence of regeneration. In his actions. He is rejoicing over his call to salvation. That is the most evident reaction of all those who know the Savior. There will be rejoicing in your heart. And it will spill over into every area of your life. And let me ask you this. Is that still happening the way it happened when he first called you to salvation? For me, the answer is no. And I'm ashamed of that. And the reason it's no is because I get my eyes on me and my desires and I take my eyes off of his desires and his purposes for my life. When I read 
things like this, it resets my heart. It refocuses and reorientates my mind back on Christ. Luke 5.29 doesn't describe this the same way that Mark 2.15 does. Luke 5, I've got to find it, 5.29. It says, Levi made him a great feast. There was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. This isn't simply a party. This is a feast. Levi is feasting because of what he has been granted through Christ. He's celebrating. And what I really, really love about this is he's not simply celebrating. He's actually, what he's doing, he's celebrating his new birth. Okay? It's a birthday party. He's celebrating his new birth. But what I love is he is not doing it by himself. The evident reaction in his heart to the Savior was, Jesus, come to my house. I want you near me. I want you to be a part of my life. Not only that, I want all my friends to know you. So I'm going to gather them all up. I'm going to bring them all in. And we're going to celebrate what you've done to me. They've seen it. They've heard it. They watched me walk away from the tax booth. They know something's happened. What I think is happening here is, is immediately after he is converted, Levi begins to exhibit traits of a joyful evangelist. A joyful evangelist. And isn't that the kind of evangelist we should be? Isn't that what you want to be? Not just a dutiful evangelist. That's good. But what about a joyful, one who is full of rejoicing evangelist? Isn't that better? Isn't that more evident that you have something to share with the lost and the dying when you're rejoicing over what you've received from Christ? He seems to have this this attitude of a joyful evangelist here. And his obedience and his repentance, I think, are already making a deep impact on his friends. They've seen something happen radically to this man. They've seen something change him. He went from his greed to God's grace. Relying upon God instead of relying on his own strength. I think Levi's conversion gives immediate hope to these friends, these sinners, these tax collectors like him. I think they are absolutely astounded by his actions. His joyful actions. Isn't that what we want in our witness? Don't we want people to not only know about Jesus theologically, biblically, doctrinally, but don't we want them to know about Jesus personally, passionately, for his praise? And that should spill over, and it should be seen by our friends. I think it was seen by his friends because I think what they saw in his immediate evident reaction to Jesus, the Savior, and his call to salvation, I think what these men saw amazed them because what they saw for the very first time was that even though I can't come to God on my own because of my sin, and I can't go to the synagogue because of my vile occupation, Levi's showing me something about 
how God comes to us. It's not a matter of how we clean ourselves up and come to Him, but He comes to us in the midst of our sin, and He calls us into new life, and He grants us faith, repentance, and forgiveness. Jesus wasn't tolerating Levi as this filthy tax collector. He was taking him into His bosom as His brother, His forgiven son. He calls him to be his student forever. Come and be a part of my life, Levi. It wasn't Jesus tolerating him. It was Jesus saying, you are mine now. You have been changed. You will bring me glory. And you will testify to others of that great grace that you've experienced. How that God favored you and called you mercifully and powerfully through the gospel. To the good news that I bring. I think that's what's happening here. It's some speculation on my part. But I think that what's happening here is he leaves his tax booth and he begins to travel home. And he is just, I just picture him as being so overwhelmed by what's just happened. He is just shouting out to all his fellow tax collectors along the way. Hey, look at this. I am leaving all this because of this man. He called me to be his disciple. And he came to me personally to give me that call. He called me out. So I think that Levi was calling out now to his hopeless friends and evangelistically inviting them to come meet my new master and my precious Savior. I think he's telling him this is the one that evidentially came near and changed me. Listen, Jesus comes near to sinners, and we should all be thankful for that. We should be as thankful as Levi was. And we should be as encouraged by our salvation to do what he does as well. To go out and tell our despised and our defiled friends that Jesus comes near to save and to cleanse sinners like us. That's the news that we are called to proclaim just as joyfully as Levi did because we are just as despised in God's sight as Levi was, before Christ mercifully and sovereignly, powerfully called us to follow him as his disciples. So here's some questions for you in application of that. Does Christ's merciful call on your life that you received at salvation, does that merciful call still move you to rejoicing like this? I mean, can you look at Levi's response and think, that's the way I act all the time? No. But there was a time in your life when you did see this. And I believe that God today wants you to think about how this can actually be your testimony even today. He wants this for you because it makes much of him. Second question, is your call to salvation as evident as Levi's was? Is your call to salvation as evident to your friends as it was at the beginning when he saved you? Is it that evident right now in your occupation, in your education, whatever you're doing? Is that call to salvation still moving you, still changing you, still transforming you evidentially in your reaction to it? Do other people around you still see you rejoicing over your salvation with joyful evangelism? Listen, church, 
I don't think any of us can say that that's the consistent pattern of our life. But it's something that I think that we all desire in our life. But we need to understand that if this is going to be the pattern of our life, we need to start where Levi started. We need to leave everything else behind. Our fear of man, our love of self, and we need to follow after Christ. We need to repent of those things because he has called us to greater things. He has called us to joyfully magnify his work here as his disciples on the earth. And when I say that, it's easy to say, it's easy to read my notes and say that, but but it's hard for me to do that. I'm preaching to myself, you're getting the overflow here, okay? Maybe this is why it was difficult for me to prepare for this. It stings. It's hard for me to say this to you because I know that I do not pursue Jesus as joyfully as I did at the beginning. And I want to. And I'm ashamed that I don't. And I can either focus on my shame and my failure, or I can look back to my Savior and my Master knowing He is going to draw me back. He's going to put me back on the path so I can joyfully declare His good news to other defiled sinners like myself who were in need of God's grace. Pray with me that that I learned to do that from Levi. Pray that we would all look at Levi's conversion and obedient reaction this morning and rejoice in what God's done in our own lives and continue to follow after Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is able to penetrate the deep, dark recesses of our hearts and expose us to the light so that we we would see our sins, our failures, but we would see them in the light of Christ's accomplishment and in light of your sovereign call on our life to continue to accomplish what you began in us at the beginning. Lord, we pray that as your word exposes sin in us, failure in us, lack of faith and obedience and pursuit of your praise through joyful evangelism. We pray that you would expose all that, but keep us focused upon the promises and the power of Christ that guarantees that we will persevere in obedience, just as Matthew did, because you were the one who began the good work in us. Not simply for us, but for your praise. Keep our minds fixed upon that, I pray this morning. In Jesus' name.